WNYC Studios is brought to you by Zbiotics. Seize the day after a night of drinks with Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink. Zbiotics was invented by PhD scientists to break down the byproduct of alcohol, which is most responsible for making you feel crummy the next day. Drink Zbiotics before your first drink, drink responsibly, and you'll wake up refreshed and ready to take on the day. Try it for yourself at zbiotics.com/wnyc and get 15% off your first order when you use WNYC at checkout. That's zbiotics.com/wnyc and use the code WNYC at checkout for 15% off. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, it's Latte from Radio Lab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Brian Lehrer on WNYC. Before we go on to our next conversation, I would like to invite a few of you to sign up for a short roundtable that we're planning for the show. This would be for some of you who live in the former George Santos Congressional District, where the special election to replace him is now underway between Democrat Tom Swasey and Republican Mozzie Pillip. You know who you are in those parts of Northeast Queens, the North Shore of Nassau County, and a few other Nassau towns. We're hoping to put together a small group of you who are politically diverse to participate in a half-hour roundtable on the show on Monday, February 12th, the day before Election Day. Here's what we're looking for. Voters who are definitely for Swazi, voters who are definitely for Mozzie Pillip, definitely want to hear from you, and some of you who are undecided as of now, definitely want to hear from you and include you. So what will we do in this roundtable? Well, we'll give you a chance to talk a little bit about the candidates, but more about the issues that are important to you in deciding on who you would like to represent you in Congress right now. So if I'm I'm piquing your interest, Mozzie Pillip voters, undecided voters, Swazi voters, if you're interested in being considered for this February 12th roundtable, please go to wnyc.org slash swing district voters. I know that's a little bit of a long URL, so I'll give it to you again, wnyc.org slash Swing District Voters, you know you live in a swing district, right? You know you live in a swing district that the rest of the country is watching as a bellwether for the whole congressional election year. Go there and you'll see a short form that you can fill out. Again, that's wnyc.org slash swing district voters. If you live in the former Santos District and would like to be on a roundtable on February 12th, the deadline to apply is the end of the day this Friday. Go take a look at WNYC.org slash Swing District Voters. Now, let's delve into the current state of the media landscape. The storied Los Angeles Times recently laid off 20% of its staff. Those cuts came shortly after layoffs at Time Magazine and National Geographic. They just keep piling up. In an essay in The Atlantic, Paul Fari, former longtime media reporter at The Washington Post, reflects on the worrying trend of these cutbacks. Fari writes, the ranks of professional journalists 
keep declining even as overall unemployment stays low, incomes rise, and the stock market reaches new heights. So we'll discuss the headwinds in the media industry, the news industry, the journalism industry in particular, so important to democracy, and their consequences for local journalism in particular and for America. Paul Fari joins us now. Paul, hi. Welcome back to WNYC. Good morning, Brian. Thanks for having me. Um, And by way of introduction, you worked at the Washington Post for more than a decade until taking a buyout. Do you want to share a bit about the cuts at your old workplace and some of the industry-wide changes as you've experienced them throughout your tenure at the Post? Well, yes, this is why, in part, I wrote about uh, this topic. Um, I covered it for the Washington Post, of course, for a number of years. But uh, it's also personal. Um, The Washington Post uh, in October announced that it was going to cut about 10% of its newsroom uh, through buyouts, fortunately, not through layoffs. Um, Many of us, many of us with quite a bit of experience, received uh, several, you know, months or years even of salary to go away. And that's exactly what I did. Um, I was at the Post since 1988, so it was 35 years uh, but uh, this was uh, both an opportunity and a kind of sad moment in uh, my life as well because um, it was the end of my journalism career. Uh, again, it was voluntary, so that wasn't uh, that kind of lightened the blow a bit. But nevertheless, uh, it was indicative of what's going on in the industry as a whole. Time, National Geographic. Condé Nast, owner of The New Yorker, among many other things. There were cuts at all these outlets recently. But you write that the grimmest, grimmest of all these recently announced cuts were at the Los Angeles Times, where they cut more than 20% of the staff. That's 115 people. For folks who aren't aware of the stature that paper held for such a long time, both as you know an outlet for local journalism in Southern California and as a national news organization, tell us what it used to be. Well, I grew up uh, reading the Los Angeles Times. I grew up in Los Angeles, um, and uh, it was a great pillar of the establishment. In fact, David Halberstam, in his uh, uh, really wonderful book, The Powers That Be, featured it as one of the pillars of the media. And, um, you know, Southern California is a effectively a country unto itself. It's huge, 20 million people. The Los Angeles Times is a giant in terms of the media in the Los Angeles area, but it's also nationally uh, a formidable kind of organization. Uh, It's the largest and still is the largest newsroom west of Washington, D.C., uh, so it it really is uh, a, a, a one of the best and one of the biggest and most important news organizations in America and therefore the world. Biotech billionaire Patrick Soon Shang bought the LA Times in 2018, and for a while things look encouraging. So why was that? And then how did they go south? Yes, uh, you know the LA Times for several decades was owned by the company that owns the Chicago Tribune and a number of other regional papers. Uh, This sounds good because it's a newspaper company, but newspaper companies were cutting back uh, uh, effectively since the advent of the internet. And the LA Times was subject to a thousand blows, uh, that is to say, lots of cuts, uh, little cuts here and there, 
finally in 2018, uh, this local biotech billionaire, Patrick Sun-Xiong, uh, took it off their hands. Um, and for a while, as you point out, he was an effective um, owner. He invested, by his count, something like a billion dollars in building up the newsroom and uh, you know improving its technology, all the kinds of things you'd hope a publisher and an owner would do. Uh, and then he didn't do those things. Uh, he began to cut last year. I think it was 74, 76 people were uh, eliminated from the newsroom. And then this past week, uh, the big blow, 115. And all told, you know, they built up uh, a newsroom and then they cut it back now by about one third. And, you know, the outlook doesn't look great. Uh, there's, it's unclear when things will turn around, if they will turn around, and how we will begin to grow again. Um, we don't know is, is really the answer. I guess it suggests a question of whether um, there's something inherently problematic or if it's a solution um, to the current you know, news business uh, economics um, when there's this sort of billionaire owner model of local and national journalism, um, where you know presumably the the owner is willing to take a loss in pursuit of having the the news organization survive. Have you looked at pros and cons with that? Yeah, and for the most part, it's pretty positive. We don't have many examples, but the Washington Post is owned by Jeff Bezos, one of the richest men in the world. Uh, the, the L.A. Times by Patrick Sun-Chiang, the Boston Globe by John Henry, also a billionaire. Um, there aren't a lot of examples, as I say, but for the most part, at least up until recently, this was a good thing. Uh, these were people who had some civic uh, or national uh, you know, concern and wanted the news organizations to be uh, robust and wanted them to reflect, you know, the the variety and depth of America. They invested in those news organizations uh, and then, well, things turned downward and they're, I wouldn't say de disinvesting, but they are certainly not, at, you know, pouring it on at this point. So they're turning on us. But listen, I mean, compared to the alternative, compared to the alternative forms of ownership, which was corporate and or uh, financial, but that is to say hedge funds or investment funds, mm -hmm. which own the majority of newspapers, uh, the billionaire model was actually pretty good. Uh, an individual who had direct responsibility as opposed to a faceless corporation. So, um, you know, given the druthers, um, billionaires are not necessarily a bad thing. Right. Although then, you know, the news organization could be directed at the whims and political preferences of one individual. There's also the story recently of a wealthy individual who's known as a conservative activist, I think it's fair to say, just bought the Baltimore Sun, and right. people are wondering what's going to happen there. So this can blow one way or another, whether the person is really civic-minded and doing it that for that reason, or whether they're doing it so they have you know, a personal megaphone in a major local news organization. Well, yes, and locally, you might want to focus on the New York Post, which is owned by Rupert Murdoch's company, and some would say uh, has been a megaphone for Rupert Murdoch's 
political views over the years. On the other hand, the Wall Street Journal is also owned by Rupert Murdoch's company or companies and has really not been exactly uh, the same thing. Uh, Wall Street Journal is still a very good news organization. And so, you know, this blows hot and it blows cold mm -hmm. and it could go either way. We don't know what's going to happen with the Baltimore Sun, but the indications are that this could be uh, a situation in which a very wealthy owner turns it into his own personal megaphone. I want to, in a minute, ask you sort of the underlying question of why, if the economy is generally doing well and is in a growth phase, why the news industry is shrinking. Uh, but listeners, we can also take your calls for Paul Fari, former longtime media reporter at The Washington Post, his new essay, in the Atlantic has the ominous headline, is American journalism headed toward an extinction level event? Maybe if you're a recent laid off media worker in the news industry or an adjacent field, you want to call in or anyone else, 212-433-WNYC, 212-433-9692, call or text. So that that underlying question, and I mentioned it in the intro, the economy is generally growing right now. Uh, jobs are being added nationwide in most industries in America. Um, people certainly are using the media a lot, can't get people off their phones, right? Uh, and yet, journalists are being laid off all over the country. Where's the disconnect? Well, the disconnect is that the media has and has always had its own kind of economy. Sometimes it reflects the national or an international economy, and sometimes it doesn't. Uh, right now, it's not reflective of the national economy. Um, within the media industry, advertising is declining. Subscriptions are falling. Uh, perhaps there's subscription overload, so many streaming services, so little time. Um, there's news fatigue, that is to say some people uh, turning away from the news because it's depressing or because it's overwhelming them. Um, there are other factors. Uh, you know, we benefited for several years from something that's been called the Trump bump, this fascination with or aversion to uh, the, the last president. And uh, we don't have the same factor right now. We sort of know Trump. This presidential race is not really fueling a whole widespread interest, which it typically does. So that's been hurting. The other thing is it's a really technical internal thing, but very important, which is the digital duopoly of Google and Facebook have downsized their interest in and their feeds, their algorithms uh, of news. That is to say, you're not getting fed a lot of news in the way you once were. That drove a lot of traffic to our uh, websites, and um, it's it's uh, been reduced over time. So you add up all these factors, and it's converging on one conclusion, which is we have less revenue, we have less traffic, and that's leading uh, to the cutbacks that you're seeing. Melinda in Englewood wants us to mention a certain local news organization around here. Melinda, you're on WNYC. Hi there. Hi. I just was wondering, yeah, how come nobody said anything about the New York Times, and I'd like to know who owns it, and um, and about the the um, corporate ownership as well as any private ownership. Melinda, How does that affect yep. what they mm -hmm. put out? Thank you very yep. much. Yeah, what about the New York City Times? Is that a um, the exception that proves the rule in almost everything we've been talking about so far? 
You know, that's it is a great question, uh, particularly for New York. Um, yes, the New York Times is an exception, one of the few news organizations that's doing well. The New York Times is owned in two ways, oddly. They have two classes of shares. One is the public, uh, like any stock in any company, uh, but also the Salzberger family, which has owned them for over 120 years, uh, owns a class of stock. Um, the New York Times is doing well because it is almost entirely supported by subscriptions. They have nearly 10 million subscriptions uh, that they have built up through the years, uh, not just from their news organization, which is a very good news organization, of course, but through uh, cooking apps, through their games apps, uh, through other means uh, other than the straight up news. But all told, uh, they're doing uh, very well, almost self-supporting now. I think they are, in fact, self-supporting through their subscription revenue. Uh, they certainly like ad revenue, but subscriptions has really have really made them into uh, a, a, a you know financially stable. And that's an exception in the industry. No one really has a self-supporting business model like that. Um, for you as a former Washington Post staffer, there was a moment at the beginning of the Trump administration where people were looking intensely to the New York Times and the Washington Post. I think those two news organizations in particular uh, to hold Trump accountable. I don't know if that's the exact moment that the Post took the slogan, democracy dies in darkness, mm -hmm. but the fortunes of the Times went one way and the fortunes of the Washington Post went another way. What, why do you think? Because I feel like they were like right there in the same category, you know, let's say on Inauguration Day 2017. Well, we were in the same category and we did benefit from this Trump bump, uh, the interest in all the scoops that you mentioned and uh, just the general interest. Our subscription uh, base, when I say our, and, and now I'm formally a Washington Post uh, reporter, uh, our subscription base grew substantially. We grew close to two uh, to three million subscriptions. Uh, we that has come down to about two and a half million as people have drifted away uh, from this Trump bump. And you know, our goal with a new uh, publisher and CEO in place is to grow back to three million. Um, we'll do that through other means other than simple interest in Trump. But Trump was be very beneficial to the Washington Post, as he was to a lot of news organizations, including television. Um, I want to make sure that we talk at least for a minute about the consequences of the decline in local journalism. I, I think the conversation we've been having assumes that it is, it is a dangerous or threatening thing. Uh, but you use a New York area example in your Atlantic article. You write a weekend local press corps is a gift to someone like George Santos. Want to take it from there? Yes, certainly. That local example of George Santos uh, really tells us where this could go and how badly it could go. There was some local coverage of George Santos's uh, 2022 campaign, uh, a little bit uh, in a Long Island newspaper, weekly newspaper. But beyond that, it didn't get constant coverage. Um, it was assumed that, uh, I guess, he had been a candidate before and he had been vetted and uh, no one paid any much attention to him until the New York Times, after the election, uh, discovered all of the fabrications and serial lies uh, that George Santos told. And then, you know, what do you do about that? Well, I mean, we know what you do about that. He became this cause celeb. He was driven out of Congress. 
and he's been indicted. But the question raised within the news media is where were the reporters before the election that could have warned off voters in his district to point out, you know, what a what a liar this guy was. The the press, the watchdog failed in this case. And that's the nightmare scenario around the country, that if we keep cutting back uh, reporters, we keep cutting back newsroom resources, we won't have the means to cover the George Santoses of the future. Sharon in Point Pleasant Beach in New Jersey. You're on WNYC. Hi, Sharon. Hi, Brian. How are you? Um, I just wanted to find out from your guest as um, a production person for a large publishing company, Condé Nast, for over 20 years. Um, I was laid off during COVID, but um, basically I wondered if the fragmentation of all of the news that we hear and that we see, it's coming at us from so many different points as before the internet or before smartphones actually um, came to came about where you only got your news, you know, on ink on paper delivered to your door. If that didn't skew everything and everybody is just like looking, has too many places to look right now. So I wanted to know if your, if your guest had any insight on that. Yeah. And, yes, and it relates to, you know, the, um, Actors and writers' strikes we saw in the entertainment industry, right? You know, a, a million years ago, there were just three major television networks, and, like, that was the industry. So there were huge audiences for each show. People could get paid more, more easily. So are we are looking at a parallel there in addition to Sharon's exact question? That, that's absolutely the case. Um, there are many, many sources uh, which you can now access. Um, and their barriers to entry, so-called, are very low to be in the news business. You know, back when, 25, 30, 40, 50 years ago, it was very expensive to be uh, a publisher, to be a broadcaster. Now, it, uh, you know, I'm a broadcaster just by picking up my smartphone. Um, I can Right, I can publish. Uh, anybody can, and so we have fragmented yeah, the, but the who audience. Who pays you? Who pays me is the is the real question. But the but by spreading this competition far and wide, who pays the existing news organizations? Right. Fewer and fewer people do. Um, before we run out of time, I, I want to ask you about one potential model that could help save local journalism. Um, it, and I, I, I think you're right about this in, in the article. It's called media bargaining, which sounds like it's a negotiation with, with the union, but I, it's different. It's more like news organizations bargaining with Google, right? That, that's it. Um, in Australia, in 2021, they passed this law that enables the publishers of content, of news content, to bargain directly with Google and Facebook uh, for compensation when Google and Facebook use news content on, on your feed. Um, this has resulted in about $130 million being passed from Google to publishers to compensate them for the use of their content. Uh, Canada also passed a law. There is a proposed similar law in America in the Senate. Uh, Amy Klobuchar and uh, uh, John Kennedy of Louisiana have co-sponsored this bill. It's going nowhere, but nevertheless, this is held up as one model, transfer 
uh, some of the revenue that has flowed to Google and Facebook back to the publishers to compensate them for the use of their news. Um, and uh, I mean, that sounds you know, fair and also foundational at the moment. And as you say, this is a bipartisan bill. You know, it's not every day we see Amy Klobuchar and Republican Senator from Louisiana, John Kennedy's name on the same bill. Uh, and yet it's not going anywhere. It's not going anywhere. It was introduced in March, and uh, here we are in January, and uh, it doesn't seem to be uh, real momentum to take this up. Uh, the Senate, as one person told me, seems to have other things to do. To on tomorrow's show, our guests will include Craig Newmark, who founded Craigslist uh, and then eventually bought the naming rights to the Graduate School of Journalism at CUNY, and you may have heard that he recently announced that his foundation is making a huge grant so that um, CUNY's Graduate School of Journalism can go permanently tuition-free. So there's at least one example of lowering the bar of entry to journalism for lucky applicants who get accepted. I, I, I wonder if there are any other strategies as we run out of time or policies that you think could help sustain quality local journalism in the face of this potential extinction event that your uh, Atlantic Magazine headline suggests? There, there are many. Uh, many of them involve the government stepping in to encourage uh, tax credits, um, you know, uh, write-offs uh, for those who hire journalists. Uh, there are private sector solutions as well, uh, mainly philanthropic. The MacArthur Foundation uh, just led a coalition of 20-plus uh, charities that is uh, raising $500 million to be distributed for local news to improve local news. So uh, there's a whole lot of uh, rescue attempts. Whether they will you know, beat back the tide is, is another question. By the way, some listeners are texting about Santos. One says... A local paper exposed Santos. The New York Times didn't break the Santos story. The Oyster Bay Herald did before his election. So <clears throat> I don't know if that's true, but maybe that's true and nobody knows. That is true. And yep. then and afterwards, the Times broke it. And then, of course, everybody noticed. That's um, absolutely true. And, and someone else is saying, oh, that paper was actually the North Shore leader. So just, just to say that those um, somebody out there did that. And yet another example of the importance of local journalism. And there we leave it with Paul Fari, former longtime media reporter at The Washington Post. He has a new essay in The Atlantic whose headline asks, Is American Journalism Headed Toward an Extinction Level Event? Paul, thank you very much. Thank you, Brian.